Something that we started the beginning of this new year was uh, starting each service praying for another church um, outside of our local church here at Terranova and Saratoga. And we'll do that most Sundays at the front end. It's just a good way to be reminded of the fact that uh, not, not only to get our eyes off of ourself a little bit, that there are others out there, but almost conversely to be encouraged that there are others out there, other churches really thousands, hundreds of thousands perhaps across the globe, brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathering today to worship Jesus and who need intercession, but are also interceding for the church global and for us. And um, there's a strength in that solidarity. So it's a good reminder for us. Um, this morning, I actually want to, um, I want to pray for the church that's yet to be. I want to pray for those who don't yet know Jesus, just to pray for the lost in our own communities um, and around the world who need Jesus. So let's start our time lifting those up to prayer this morning, and then we'll, we'll dig into our passage in Hebrews together. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you that uh, we have the chance to gather to worship you today. We know that we are here by virtue of what your word teaches us because you have drawn us to yourself. You've opened our eyes to see our need for Jesus. And by your grace, we have received him as a, as a free gift, received his offering of, of salvation through his death and his resurrection as a free gift. We give you thanks. What a gift it is, Lord. And I pray that you would refresh the knowledge and understanding of your grace in our lives through Jesus this morning, that we would live from an abundance of gratitude and that that would compel us to share the good news of the gospel with those who still need it. Lord, we pray for those people in our current circles of influence, at work, in our neighborhoods, in our families that need Jesus. And we pray you'd be at work in their hearts to draw them to yourself. I pray you would give us humility as we seek to be a light to those people because, Lord, we were once far off. We were lost. It is nothing good about ourselves that has brought us into your, your grace. It is your grace alone. So Lord, give us that compassionate heart, the one that you have for the lost. And give us boldness and courage, Lord, that would overwhelm our fears of man to be able to share the good news of the gospel. Lord, we pray for those around the world, not just in our own communities, who need Jesus. And we pray that there would be revival in our own communities here, in our country, and around the world. That there would be a massive response in the days and months and years soon, Lord, to the gospel, and that we would see the church flourish and grow. We know this can only be done by your grace and with your help, and so we pray these things in your name for your glory and for the good of those who are yet to be a part of the bride of Christ, your church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you want to turn there, we will just We'll jump right into it and read it and then kind of break down what we see happening today. Hebrews chapter 2, just four verses. And really, don't let the, <clears throat> the chapter division mislead you. There's a direct connection between these four verses, which is a turn into this, um, it, it, it's a switch of gears on the author's part into exhortation from this great proclamation of truth about who Jesus is. It's all connected, but we're just going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. For those who are able, would you please 
uh, join me in standing as we read God's word together. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. You may be seated. As I mentioned a moment ago, um, this is a charge, an exhortation, a warning on the part of the author of Hebrews that we just read. And it's important to note that this warning doesn't come in isolation. It's tied to chapter 1, particularly the verses that we read last week, verses 5 to 14. And what the author is doing here is he was magnifying Jesus, exalting Jesus, making much of Jesus in order to now exhort and call his readers to action. That's what he's doing. And there's a principle here that's helpful for me to point out, I think, Um, in in a theological sense, but also very practically for us today, and that is this principle of indicatives before imperatives. Fancy words just means facts before commands. Uh, It means uh, truths before instruction. It's who is Jesus and who are you in him before it is how should you live in light of that. And it's a pattern we see again and again throughout the scriptures. The Apostle Paul is great at this. He does it a lot. A prime example would be Ephesians chapter 3, verses one, or chapters 1 through 3 of this six-chapter-long letter is indicative, full, facts, truths. Here's what's true about Jesus and you in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 are imperatives. Here's what you should now do about that in light of these truths. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, this is what he says. You can just hear the transition. I, therefore, Paul's talking of himself, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he's calling them to walk now in a certain way. If you just started in chapter 4, you'd be like, okay, here's what I need to do as a Christian. But you would miss the foundation for that. All of the indicatives, the truths, the, the facts that came in chapters 1 through 3. So indicatives before imperatives. And there's a principle for us in life, I believe, as well, too, here. Because I think this can be applied to how we pastor those and care for those around us and our families and our friends. Um, Truth should always inform our motivations to instruct and correct. If we just jump to correction and instruction, we might even be right about what we see that needs to be called out in somebody else's life around us. But if we do that and our heart isn't informed by truth, of the gospel that's true for us, even as it's true for them, of who Jesus is to us, even as he is to them, it'll completely change the way in which you deliver that message to that person. Truth also should inform, I think, our words, what's heard um, before we give instruction and correction. I think of, you know, just an example for those of us who are parents in the room with our own kids. How many times have, if you've got multiple children, like is it, uh, they've been in conflict with one another, one hurts the other, but they apologize, maybe begrudgingly, but they've apologized. And so then to the other, you say, well, you, you need to forgive them. But sometimes the way we've done that is we say, well, listen, it's right for you to forgive them now. But do you know why? 
because Christ has forgiven you of your sins. So that, that's like laying the foundation of the fact, the truth, the gospel that should inform why they should forgive their sibling for the offense against them. It's the way we should live our lives. And it's the way that the author of Hebrews is functioning here in this letter. Chapter one, full of this declaration of glorious truth about who Jesus is before he gets to this first warning here in chapter two. Why is that important for his readers and for us today? Because here's what he's saying in chapter two, verses one through four, essentially. If you don't listen to the message of Jesus, expect greater punishment than those in the Old Testament who didn't listen to the message of the angels. If you don't work vigilantly to pay attention, you'll drift. Those things are true. But what precedes it? He says, see Jesus, see his glory, see his greatness, the one who left heaven to come to earth and to be with us and to die for us. The one who upholds the universe by the power of his word. He is sovereign Lord, he's in control. You can trust him. The one who's the eternal creator God, worthy of all of our worship. That's the one we should listen to. That's the one we don't wanna drift away from. Indicatives before imperatives. Here's the other reason that's important because if you hear an imperative, a command, here's what you should do, and you hear it in isolation, without those truths coming before it, it could be received as a threat, right? It could, and then the response of the hearer is gonna be one more likely of fear and obligation, which leads ultimately to burnout. But if you hear it with the imperative, the context of here's what's true first, then it comes across with a greater emphasis in grace. It's a plea to respond to this truth because of a genuine warning, but in light of what's true. How can we not respond to this? How can we not listen to this one? It completely changes the way, changes the way you're going to hear the warnings and the in, in imperatives of Scripture, including in the letter to the Hebrews. It's still sobering. I'm not saying that there's no appropriate fear and trembling as we listen to the warnings in God's Word. But it's a matter of emphasis and degree. And the emphasis is always one of Listen to the good news of the gospel. Listen to God's grace, his greatness. Now in light of that, be warned. Before we jump into the main idea, there's one other thing I want to talk about, and that is who is it that's being addressed here anyway? Good question. Let's move on. I say that. It's not that funny for those who probably aren't steeped in Hebrews. There, this is loaded. Warning passages are loaded and are loaded with questions that it's going to evoke from us as to does this apply to me or not as a Christian? Um, three times in verse one here, the author says, or uses we, right? He says, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. He's including himself in this warning. And we have every reason to conclude and understand that the author of Hebrews was a Christian. So are Christians in view here? Well, are they in need of this warning, in other words? In one sense, yes. Okay, the, the argument now, it's, it's pretty vague it's, as to what he's saying here are gonna be the consequences. That's probably intentional. His point is really, if we neglect the New Testament message, the message that came through most clearly in Christ, then the punishment, whatever that is, is going to be worse than that that was experienced by God's people under the old covenant. Israel, right, when they received the message from the angels. Um, 
there are a couple of options for understanding the consequences in view here, the punishment in view here. Number one, it could be that discipline for God's people, genuine believers is in view here. Probably one of the most well-known passages in all the New Testament on the idea of God's discipline comes from Hebrews chapter 12. We'll get to that later in this series. Um, we, we read there, God disciplines those whom he loves. It's actually an act of love in the lives of his children. But even if that's in part true, and there's allowed to be some ambiguity as to how we apply this passage, it's more likely that what is in view here is the final judgment. Ultimately, when people come before Jesus and God asks what we've done with him. The church has always been made up of a combination of believers and non-believers. As early as Jesus' teaching uh, in Matthew 13 on the parable of the weeds, he talked about how there would be both mixed amongst his people. And at one point, all of us in here were a non-believer. Now, maybe that was as a child and you kind of slowly evolved and it was almost hard to distinguish when you became one. Maybe it was as an adult and you were a part of a church as a professing non-believer at one point, a skeptic, but you were seeking and then you came to Christ in the midst of, uh, of, a, of a church. But at one point, all of us were non-believers. And it's important to keep that in perspective. It's by God's grace that we are saved. But there, so there's a sense then that when I say, um, when I talk of the family of Terra Nova Church, I mean all who call Terra Nova Church home, whether you're seeking Jesus or you're already a follower of Jesus. In that sense, we are Terra Nova Church is accurate. Um, you are a part of this family, even if you are on this journey as a seeker and you've not yet accepted and trusted in Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Additionally, there may be some in the church, even in our own, that think that they are followers of Christ, but when push comes to shove in life, when you experience suffering, when idolatry creeps in and exposes there's something else that you actually love and prefer more to Christ, you will drift. Or you'll perhaps break altogether from Christianity. Something else will become more important or Christ won't be worth the cost that it takes to follow after him. So this is tricky. The author is speaking to Christians here, or at least those who would profess to be Christians, or at least those who align themselves with Christ and his church in some way. And so we have this warning. How are we to understand it? How are we to apply it to ourselves? Well, let me just acknowledge here at the outset, this is probably one of the most uncomfortable doctrines that the letter to the Hebrews forces us to examine, and that is the security of the believer. Can somebody who's truly a follower of Jesus lose their salvation? My view personally, our view that we hold to generally across the board in leadership at Terra Nova is no, a definitive no. It's a very precious doctrine of, uh, of the Bible and of the Christian faith to me personally uh, for a variety of reasons we'll get into as we continue on in this series and even in uh, the Terra talks that we do. And so I did want to mention, too, if you, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, we'll have a series of what we call Terra Talks, living room-style conversations that will be uh, an opportunity to actually dialogue about these things after some short teaching, where we can go deeper than there's the luxury of on a Sunday morning. This, this doctrine, this issue of can a believer lose their salvation once they're saved will be one of those areas we'll go into more deeply. So we touch upon it today. Um, but it's something we'll dig into more as we go on in this series. I just wanted to mention that. 
So the main idea that the author of Hebrews through these four verses is trying to convey to his audience is this. Better news, of which this is, requires better attention on our part. We're kind of following in the theme then of the better than. If you received one of those cards uh, early on uh, in in January, uh, there's about 30 different passages that we're going to break up this series into. Each one is Jesus is better than something. And today he is the better news. Um, And with better news comes greater accountability on our part is the point of the author here. So what do I mean by better news? What does he mean? Not good news versus bad news, okay? That's not what he means here or I mean. Better news in form and source. Jesus is the better news in form and source because Jesus is the, no long, there's no longer an intermediary. God came in human flesh to give the final word, word on salvation for mankind. It's better in form and in substance and the source is better. That's what he means. The author outlines this in three parts in verses three and four, so kind of jumping to the end of our passage first. Um, Again, previously in chapter one, we talked about how there were other means of communication that God had with his people in the Old Testament, prophets and angels, among other things. But now that middleman has been removed, and in verse three, he says, it was declared at first by the Lord, by Jesus himself. The whole argument now from chapter one builds to this. He's saying, do you remember everything I just said in chapter one about who this Jesus is? It's this Lord now who has spoken to us, the one who's vastly superior to the the prophets or even the divine angelic beings who were intermediaries of the message before. And it wasn't just in proclamation. God didn't just take on flesh to speak words that audibly could be heard by those around him. He embodied it as well to the point of dying on the cross for our sins. So it was declared at first by the Lord, this is the better news given by God himself in human flesh. Not only that, though, it was attested to by those who heard, it also says in verse 3. Who are they? These are the apostles. These are the firsthand eyewitnesses, and probably by extension, others who were with Jesus or witnessed him firsthand. The teachings, the miracles, his death and his literal burial and resurrection, they witnessed these things and they testified to them. And then also in verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He's saying, and then the things that were spoken by these eyewitnesses were confirmed uh, by, by who? By God through signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. I think it's worth noting that question there of who was it that bore witness? It it would be easy for us to have filled in the blank or even perhaps the author to have written, it was attested to us by those who heard and also performed miracles to confirm. It doesn't say that. It says God bore witness. It's in one sense true that human beings were and are often uh, the agents, if you will, the conduits of God's supernatural power to confirm the true things of the gospel. But the author says it is God who bore witness by signs and wonders, etc., to confirm these things. It's subtle but significant. Why? Because it's the difference between making the supernatural gifts too much about ourselves and how great we are, rather than the supernatural gifts testifying to who God is and how great he is. 
there's a, throughout church history, there's been at least two veins, but the most popular veins of understanding how to apply and understand a text like verse 4 today. And one brand is called continuationism and the other is called cessationism. And it has to do with how we handle and understand the supernatural today, particularly uh, the spiritual gifts, the more supernatural spiritual gifts. At Terra Nova, we are unashamedly uh, continuationists. We don't see a good reason from Scripture to believe that God does not continue to work today through his people in supernatural ways, through the gifts that he's given them. Um, However, what I'll also say is, while that is biblical, we don't see any good reason why, because I should also say that the cessationist viewpoint would be that the, those gifts ceased with the apostles or with the writing of the New Testament. That like this is saying, in a sense, like God used those things to confirm the eyewitness accounts, um, but then it stopped after that. There was no point anymore in him having to do those things. There's no reason, we believe, our conviction from Scripture, that that is true. Nonetheless, it is easy for us to go astray in our use of, um, in our application of, in our exercise of the spiritual gifts today, especially the supernatural ones. So I just want to offer three parameters that I think are important for us to operate within as a church who is very much open to God working this way in, in our lives and through us for his glory and for the confirmation of the truth of the gospel. Number one, we should always marvel at what God is doing and not man. If you find yourself marveling at what a person is doing and not God, then we're missing the purpose. It's easy to do. It really is easy to do. But if you find yourself in that place, you either need to examine your own heart, whether you're making man an end of himself, which is idolatry, or you need to perhaps question whether there's something about the practitioner that needs to change. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you steer clear of them. If it's within the context of the body of Christ, then we come alongside one another and we, as iron sharpen iron, we challenge one another to say, hey, I think the way in which you're doing this might not actually serve the end in which God intended for it. But it's something we have to keep in mind. We should always marvel more at what God, we should marvel, always marvel at what God is doing and not man, number one. Number two, we should always desire the giver more than the gifts. Um, my, my journey in, in this area probably began, I mean, who knows, but in a way that I was conscious of probably about six or seven years ago, where I would have been a continuationist then, but wasn't necessarily very open to how God might want to work that in my own life, through my own life, through the churches that I, church that I was a part of. Um, and I remember a few years after that, I don't know if you remember this, Matt, but we were on kind of one of our um, days away to retreat and kind of reflect on where we'd been. And we were hiking giant nubble, I think by suggestion of Paul Feketa. And we were parked on that nubble overlooking the valley. And I was, I was sharing some of these things with Matt, and I know he was on this journey too. And one of the things that I just felt like God had recently impressed upon me that I wanted to cling to while still remaining open to the way that he wanted to work through his power by the Spirit today was this. I just felt like if I had to choose between knowing God's love for me and on the other hand, never experiencing supernaturally some gift through me or witnessing it or being used by God in that way, I would choose knowing God's love for me any day. It was something I needed to hear at the time. I'm not saying we have to choose. It's just something that I needed to hear at that time. Uh, Romans 8 
kind of talks about this. I think that we don't need to experience the supernatural, the miraculous, in order to know God's love for us. Really don't. Except for in one sense, the gift of the Holy Spirit that he's put in us to identify us as his own. And that's what he says in Romans chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. At the end of the day, the Holy Spirit that God has given to indwell all his people will confirm your status as sons and daughters of God, and that is the primary and best way by which you know you are loved by him. The other thing I'll say at this point is 1 Corinthians chapter 13 um, it's an interesting letter. We went through it a couple of years ago here at Terra Nova. It's, this ch- it's one of the most immature churches that Paul addresses through his letters, and yet they were prolific in the spiritual gifts, and yet using them in ways that were causing all kinds of havoc. And one of the things that he says in that context is he talks about how the supernatural gifts will cease when the perfect comes, meaning the return of Christ, the new heavens and the new earth established. What that teaches us, that the supernatural gifts that God has given us here on this side of eternity will end when we get to be in eternity with God, is that they are not an end in and of themselves. They were never designed to be. They were always designed for the purpose to point us to the ultimate end, which is God himself and his love for us and knowing that love from him in our lives. So the implication here is this. Desire the thing that will last forever over the thing that will cease. Desire both. It's biblical to be used by God in powerful ways that will draw people's attention to him, but desire ultimately the thing that will last forever over the thing that will cease. God's gifts are temporary to us to help us to know the one who is eternal. Let's never forget that. And then number three, we should always practice the gifts for the end goal of strengthening, encouraging, and comforting those around us. That comes from 1 Corinthians 14, verse Three, the context there is talking about prophecy in a different way than Old Testament prophecy with the prophets then who were declaring revelation that was new, that was codified in God's word. Prophecy works, worked differently in the New Testament after, uh, or after the New Testament, it works differently in that um, it's, it's a timely truth that's spoken, that the spirit has spoken through his people, but it should always accord with what's already been written in God's word, okay? So that, the context is still that of supernatural Gifts and Paul is saying the purpose should be to strengthen, to comfort, and to encourage those around us. And so, if we find ourselves instead weakened, discomforted, and discouraged in how others are using their gifts or people's response to how we're using our gifts, then that should be a check on us. Why is that? Paul had to write that to the Corinthians because they were genuinely expressing power of the Holy Spirit, but in such a way that people were experiencing the opposite of its ultimate intent. So we need to be careful and aware of that as a people who want to be open to how God wants to work by his Spirit in our church and in our lives today. One other thing I'll say, it's not really a parameter to operate within. It's an observation here. We're told God bore witness by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. 
I don't believe there's any reason for us to understand from this context that all the spiritual gifts are not in view here. Meaning, both the quote-unquote natural ones, where the Spirit gifts people administratively, and gifts of service, and gifts of hospitality, as well as the supernatural ones, gifts of of healing, speaking in tongues, uh, words of knowledge, kind of the the prophetic sense. All of those are in view here, and yet we're told they're distributed by God according to his will. And what that implies is that not everyone will have all of these gifts. So if you don't speak in tongues, if you don't get words of knowledge, if you're not used to heal people, if you don't perform miracles, it may be because God has chosen in his sovereignty not to gift you in that way. And yet you are just as valuable and just as loved by God. So don't define your value before God by the gifts that you have or that you don't have. If you feel that way, you're imposing that on yourself or that's man's teaching, but that is not what God teaches in his word, okay? God bore witness by the gifts of the Holy Spirit that he distributed according to his will. Different people, different gifts, just like different body parts, members of the body of Christ serve and function differently, okay? Just some things to keep in view in light of verse four. So how did we get there? We got there because we have better news in terms of it, the form that it came in, which was God himself in the form of Jesus Christ proclaiming the the news of salvation that was testified to by the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus firsthand and confirmed by God by supernatural works and the Holy Spirit. And as a result, this is where we turn the corner more into the warning portion. As a result, the warning here is that requires from us better attention. Pay attention, he's saying. Why? He gives us another argument from lesser to greater. This is a technique that the author of Hebrews has used already once and will continue to use many times throughout this letter. Last week we saw it in that he said, basically, if you marvel at the angels, and you should, when we properly understand their place in God's created order, and they marvel at Jesus, how much more should you be in awe of him? There was example one of argument from lesser to greater, Then this week he's saying, if the message of the angels, which by the way is primarily the law given to Moses, them serving as intermediaries, if that was reliable and disobeying that message resulted in the consequences that we saw in the old covenant, how much more if we neglect the hand-delivered message of God himself in the form of his son? That's the argument, okay? I think, by the way, that this argument is somewhat analogous to the value in disciplining children. When we, um, when we discipline our children, it's hard. For those of you who are parents, it's not easy. There's a lot of times where I'm tempted to kind of pull back because it leads to conflict, because you see how it can cause pain of a kind emotionally. Like it's just, it's not easy. Why do we do it? We do it because we are deeply convicted that the consequences of our children's actions are going to be that much greater later on when they have more responsibility, when they're older, when they're on their own. That's why we do it. We're trying to spare them of greater consequences later in their life. I think this is also an important principle in redemption history. Right? With more revelation, 
by God, there's more accountability. And the greatest revelation that God gave was sending his son as savior. So the consequences of rejecting the savior are going to be that much greater. Do you see how that works? God's patience and long suffering with his people to slowly, gradually work up to this greatest revelation in his son. But with that great revelation comes great responsibility and accountability. And he says, how shall we escape if we neglect this salvation? Well, escape what? This is where we kind of get back to some of the foundation setting up front that I was mentioning. This could be uh, escaping a more severe form of discipline that God would be implementing in the lives of his people, as talked about in Hebrews 12. But at least a part of what is in view here is God's judgment, his final judgment. The very thing that Jesus came to save us from, eternal hell and separation from God. Um, Some of you have heard of perhaps Tim Keller. He's a uh, well-known author, uh, was a pastor. I don't know if he's still on staff at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. And this was probably a decade ago now. He was interviewed at Columbia University and just a a real uh, touchy question that he was asked, of course, about a certain sin and its consequences. And would this particular sin lead somebody to going to hell? And he turned the question on its head. And it was, his answer was brilliant because it really got to the heart of the gospel and what we need and the heart of what leads to separation from God and eternal hell. And in essence, what he said is no, no one sin, no one sin sends a person to hell. Being an adulterer doesn't send you to hell any more than being a fornicator or a murderer or a liar sends hell. What sends you to hell is believing yourself to be your own savior. Because at that point, and this is no longer his quote, that's point, at that point, there's, there's nothing more that Jesus can do for you. Because he, you've neglected the one thing that he's come to offer you that you can't provide for yourself. You could never attain on your own. Salvation of your sins against a holy God. Only Jesus can do that for you. If we ultimately neglect such a great salvation... God in the form of his son Jesus laying down his life for us. Ultimately, what it reflects is we've, we've placed our trust in something or someone else, maybe in ourselves, to answer the greatest problems that we have in our life. And it's for these people, the author here is speaking, the ones who in their hearts believe themselves to be their own savior, that this warning is given. So the author says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Because the stakes are so much greater now that God has revealed himself and his plan of salvation in full, it's complete in the person and work of his son, there is much greater accountability, so we have to pay much better attention. So I want to close our time by breaking down this final verse a little bit here, and this is where we'll get a little more practical. What does this look like for ourselves? What does it mean to avoid drift, to to not end up in this place where we've neglected this great salvation. Well, the author uses this word here in that verse, must. It's the first thing I want to point out. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. It's not, we should pay closer attention. Ideally, we're paying closer attention now that Jesus has come. No, he's he's saying there's an urgency here. It's essential. The author doesn't see it as a choice. He's desperate for this church, his 
beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, those who were in the church at Rome, not to drift away and experience the devastating consequences that would follow. And so he says, pay attention. And he wants them to avoid drifting away. So he's using these nautical, these terms with nautical connotations here, okay, like ships and boats and things like that. Pay attention was actually a technical term that could be used for a ship coming into port. Ships in those days didn't have motors on them so that they could put it in reverse if they gauged their drift into the port wrong. They had to actually pay vigilant attention attention to drop the sails at just the right time so they drifted into the spot they should. If they got it wrong, they misjudged or they miscalculated, then they'd miss that spot and they could drift back out to sea. Then when he says, lest you drift away, another term that could be used of water and nautical connotations to it, he's talking about, or he has in mind perhaps, uh, a ship that's failing to stay on course when it's traveling, or that when it's anchored, it's not anchored well. So unbeknownst to those who are on board, or maybe off board, their their ship is slowly drifting away. Or it could also pertain to somebody who was floating downstream slowly and didn't even notice that they had they'd passed by uh, a point of security, a dock, or like a little rocky jut, uh, the outcrop that was jutting out, and now they're past that point of security. What he's really talking about here is spiritual drift. Donald Guthrie, who's a commentator on the book of Hebrews, he put it this way, he said, he is not thinking of a deliberate refusal to heed. This isn't a arms crossed, I'm not listening to that but of almost a helpless slipping away, literally to flow past like driftwood in a river. Hence the words, lest we drift away. So how does that happen? I'm going to offer three suggestions here, not an exhaustive list. Number one, it can happen when we give ourselves to a truth that's one degree off. Very close. I say truth in air quotes, right? So let me put that more clearly. It can happen when we give ourselves to a lie that's one degree off from the truth. Um, Lee and I, uh, her parents live out in California. We fly into LAX. Um, when we go out there to visit them, uh, you don't get direct flights from Albany, unfortunately. So we usually have two or three stops on the way. But let's say, or we flew out of LaGuardia, that it was a straight shot uh, to LAX. If the course charted was one degree off, by the time you reached California and the runway in LA or where you were supposed to, you would be hundreds of miles off of the coast in the Pacific Ocean. But you wouldn't know it until you got there. How does this happen? I want to encourage you to be careful of the teachers that you're influenced by. Books, podcasts, pastors. Who is influencing you? Be discerning. Here's what I want to encourage you to do in order to be discerning. Read your Bibles more than you allow the influence of teachers and preachers and books and podcasts and audiobooks in your life. Hard to do. I'm not sure if that proportion is true for my life. But keep that principle in mind. Secondly, read and listen to a wide variety of sources on the different theological and most important theological doctrines of the faith. Maybe pick sources that are counterpoints to what you believe and maybe converse with those who actually see it differently than you. If there are people that you're in community with who have a different viewpoint than you on important 
doctrines of the Christian faith, and you know them to be somebody who loves Jesus and his word, talk with them about it. That can help be a fail-safe to keep you from drifting that one degree off. Before you know it, you're not even within orthodoxy anymore, believing what the Bible actually teaches about something. How else can it happen? Number two, suffering. Spiritual drift can happen through suffering. All of us experience suffering to one degree or another. Suffering was probably the primary reason why the recipients of this letter were susceptible to spiritual drift. We talked about this week one in the introduction, that there was persecution that they were experiencing in probably the mid-60s AD under um, Nero in Rome, just before the martyrdom of Christians took place. And that had all kinds of social and economic implications, stressors for them. They were experiencing persecution and suffering. What suffering tends to do in our life is it reveals our true allegiances. Now, that's not a, a guilt trip. There, there's nobody that I know, including myself, who doesn't find it harder to trust God than when I'm in pain. We're all susceptible to that. But what, what can happen is when we suffer, especially for extended periods of time, is it can often result in new habits that seem innocuous to begin with, but over time, they ultimately become sources of dependency in your life other than Christ. And then what can ultimately happen, the Bible talks about this concept of a seared conscience. Like if you think of searing some meat, you're keeping the juices in. When you rely upon something other than Jesus long enough, if you sin in a certain way, subtle as it may be long enough, you can get a seared conscience, which can actually keep the Holy Spirit from penetrating from without and bringing the conviction that's needed. And that can lead to spiritual drift. And then thirdly, busyness. Busyness can lead us to spiritual drift. Now, we're busy, yes. I probably have been guilty of saying before, oh, we're busier than any other time in human history. You know what? As I've been getting to think about this, I don't think that's true. As I've overheard from the other room, Everett and Dahlia, my older son and daughter, listening to Laura Ingalls Wilder's uh, Little House on the Prairie from like 150 years ago, like, nah, I'm pretty sure they were busier than us, you know? Like, Pa's trying to big a, build a house in the middle of like, you know, middle America where there's planes and like tornadoes that are knocking it down. Then he breaks his foot, but he's still building the house. Then all the cattle die. And so they're going days on end, still building the house without food. Maybe a slight hyperbole, but they were busy, probably busier than we were today. The question isn't whether or not it's right or wrong to be busy. Is is are we busy about the right things? Much of our busyness is, I think, succumbing to the overwhelming amount of choices we have, many of which are just distractions, frivolous distractions. Ask yourself at the end of a week sometime, what are the things I had to do in order to survive this week? What are the things that I did this week that were actually of eternal consequence? And also ask yourself, what are the things that I I did that I could have survived without? And what are the things that at the end of the day were of little to no consequence? That's what I mean by we should be busy. Necessarily, we're going to be busy, but we need to be busy about the right things. Inevitably, we're going to be busy. But being busy about the right things can actually help inform and shape a proper perspective about what is true in life. Providing for your family, communing with God, serving those around you, enjoying pastimes that truly engage you in the true, the good, and the beautiful. Be busy about those kinds of things. 
Because when we're busy about the wrong kinds of things, it tends to lead to spiritual drift. James K.A. Smith is an author. Some of you at Tara read a book with me years ago called You Are What You Love, The Power of Spiritual Habit. And he talked about how easily we are shaped by our life liturgies, habits and patterns of our life. The things that you do with repetition actually shape what you love and who you become. What are you busy about? If you're busy about the wrong things that are of no consequence ultimately, it could lead slowly to spiritual drift. Those are just three possibilities, guys. Giving yourself to a truth that's one degree off, suffering, busyness. C.S. Lewis uh, said this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, with sudden, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. By the way, that came from Screwtape Letters. That's a top five all-time book for me in terms of how it personally shaped me. It's very insightful in that way. So let me come full circle. This is the first of several warning passages in the letter to the Hebrews that we get. We can receive this warning of one, in one or two ways today. As a threat, or we can receive it as grace. As a threat, we can receive it, if you don't obey, then you'll be punished, so you better get your act together. As grace, we can receive it this way. Look what God has already done for you. What a mercy it is that he's patient enough to be willing to remind you of this again. That he's pleading with you to take the way of salvation that he has provided for you through his son. Because if we don't, there are real and dire consequences. Consequences that were absorbed actually by the very one that God proclaimed that message through. Consequences that were absorbed on the cross by God's son Jesus. Communion, which we're about to celebrate, reveals those consequences. The broken pieces of matzah representing Jesus' body broken for our sins, and the blood representing the blood or the, the wine or the juice representing the blood that was spilled for the forgiveness of our sins. When we come forward to celebrate communion, we're sober-minded about it. We recognize there's a gravity and a tragedy to what happened, but we're also appropriately celebratory of the fact that Jesus absorbed the consequences that were meant for us on the cross. We can celebrate that, and we should. But if you don't receive communion today, and if that's not because you're a Christian who's recognizing there's something I need to repent of or reconciliation with our brother and sister Christ, those are biblical reasons not to take communion. But if you're not receiving communion today because you don't believe, then those consequences that Jesus absorbed for us will one day fall to you instead at the judgment. And this is a gracious warning for you today that you, that doesn't need to happen. But even for those of us who do receive today, be sober-minded about it each week as you take communion, as you enter into Christian community, as you read your Bibles. Be sober-minded about where you're really at with Jesus. This isn't a need to question your salvation over and over again. That is not what God wants for his people. But ask the question of yourself, is the overall trajectory of your life one of faith, one of trusting God? When life gets hard, do you generally turn to Jesus in your times of struggle? With all the good gifts God has given, would you ultimately choose him at the end of the day over those gifts? Because there's a gracious warning here today for Christians as well. 
God has made as plain as possible our need for salvation and the source of salvation. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. And he's made as plain as possible his surpassing love and mercy and goodness and greatness in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let's hear his words today, God's words to us. Would you pray with me as we close? God who speaks. Thank you for how that reveals to us that you want to be in relationship with us. Lord, thank you that you were so abundantly clear to communicate your love for us through Jesus and sending him into this world. Help us to not miss that. God, would you graciously open the eyes, the blind eyes, the calloused hearts, the seared consciences who need Jesus this morning? Would you spare us of spiritual drift? Would you open our ears to heed the warning? And Lord, I pray that as you've set out to do, the grand arc of your redemption narrative so many times. We just read about your loving heart, your steadfast love, your patience, your mercy being the overwhelming theme of Scripture. May we not be compelled out of fear and obligation leading to burnout to turn to you. May we be compelled by what is true, by what you revealed of yourself and of your love for us through your Son. We can't do that on our own. By the power of your spirit, would you open our eyes to our sin and our need for a savior? And by the power of your spirit, would you remind us that we are beloved sons and daughters of the most high God who are in Christ. In Jesus' name.